Hello there, and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes, and this is a podcast series that looks at the Crusades from the Byzantine angle. In the previous episodes, we've looked at how the Byzantines and Seljuk Turks clashed in the 1040s to 70s. Why is that important to the Crusades? Well, I think this was actually the real cause of the Crusades, because there was a dramatic change in the political and military status quo in the Middle East when the Byzantines were defeated at the pivotal Battle of Manzikert in 1071, which I think was one of the most important battles of the Middle Ages. So, in this episode, we're still looking at the years just before Manzikert and how they led to the battle. Last episode, we heard how the new Byzantine emperor, Romanus Diogenes, won a significant victory against the Arabs in Syria in 1068, but he still couldn't stop the Seljuk Turks from sacking two major cities in Byzantine Anatolia, Neo-Caesarea and Armorium. The real problem for Romanus was that the Turks could make really quick hit-and-run raids deep into Byzantine territory. How could Romanus deal with these? Well, the year now is 1069, and Romanus is leading the Byzantine army back to the east to try to find an answer to that problem. But it's not going to be easy, as you will hear. As before, I'll read extracts from my book called The Byzantine World War, which was published last year in 2019 and is available at Amazon and most retailers and is probably the most detailed account yet written of the Byzantine War against the Seljuk Turks. So, let's go. Hope you enjoy it. In January 1069, Romanus returned to Constantinople from his first campaign. In spite of Athens' sack of Armorium, he organised a triumphal march through the city's Golden Gate to celebrate his victory in Syria. It was the first victory for decades. Triumphal marches were an important sign of Byzantine military success, and the absence of one for so long was testimony to the decline of the Byzantine army. Although the sack of Armorium had damaged his credibility, Romanus was still in a strong position. He had the support of most of the nobility, in particular the powerful Komneni family, the main rivals to the Dukai. The empress had also just given birth to their first child, a boy called Nicephorus, which further reinforced Romanus's claim to the throne, since any child born in the purple by which the Byzantines meant any child of a reigning monarch, had a claim to the imperial throne in Byzantine eyes. Nevertheless, Armorium's destruction made it clearer than ever that to retain his popularity, Romanus had to secure a decisive victory over the Turks. Therefore, in January 1069, he reverted back to his original plan of the previous year for an offensive into the east with the aim of securing the eastern frontier around Mansikert. After he distributed in customary fashion the salaries and honours to the senators and military commanders, he crossed over the Bosphorus from Constantinople to muster the army. The same as in the previous year, he took the Western army to augment his new Eastern regiments. 
But as he was waiting for the Eastern Army to assemble, he heard some surprising news. The largest group of Norman mercenaries in Byzantine pay, led by a man called Robert Crispin, had rebelled. Stationed on the Armenian frontier in the fortress Mauro Castro, midway between Theodosiopolis and Mansikert, this unit of Normans, probably no more than about 500 strong, felt that they had been underpaid by Romanus and had started to rob the Byzantine tax collectors. Romanus wanted to put an end to this insurrection quickly. He disliked the mercenary troops anyway, which uh, was in reality the source of the Normans' complaints. Romanus was still based just across the Bosphorus from Constantinople, too far away to lead his troops personally against Crispin. So he ordered five regiments of the Western Army, who were stationed close to the Normans on the Armenian border, to put the rebellion down. These Byzantine soldiers were under the command of a general called Samuel Alusianos. On the 12th of April, 1069, which was Easter Day, and that was the most important day in the medieval Christian calendar, Alusianos attacked. The result was a shambles. It was meant to be a surprise attack, with Easter Day chosen since the Normans would be distracted with the Christian festivities. The soldiers from the Western Army crept up on the Norman camp, which was not defended with a palisade or ditch. But the Byzantine sources say they tripped over the tent ropes as they approached. More likely is that they failed to see the tripwires hung with bells on them placed around the camp, which was a tactic widely used by medieval armies. Whatever the truth, the Normans quickly picked up their weapons and drove the Byzantines out of their camp, killing quite a number and afterwards pursuing them on horseback. Crispin didn't want to provoke too strong a response from Romanus, so he released the prisoners and cared for the Byzantine wounded. Nevertheless, Romanus was still furious. He led his army to Dorylaeon, the main Byzantine military hub in Anatolia, equipped with a huge arsenal and barracks. And there, envoys arrived from Crispin, pleading for clemency on the basis that they had been attacked by surprise and sacrilegiously on Easter Day itself. Ataliates reports that at first Romanus was willing to listen to their claims, and when Crispin himself arrived, he swore his loyalty to Romanus. But other soldiers in Romanus's army, including apparently a prominent German mercenary, denounced Crispin and persuaded Romanus to arrest him. Romanus may have made a mistake, for in spite of his disobedience, Crispin was a good soldier, and his arrest, as will become apparent later in our story, made him into a personal enemy. More immediately, Crispin's arrest didn't even solve the problems with the rebellious Normans. With Crispin sent to a prison at Abydos on the Bosphorus, the rest of the Normans openly revolted. They stayed in the Armenian theme in the fortress at Maro Castro, where they continued to take the law into their own hands. Romanus left them there. At least they presented an obstacle to the Turks. 
Returning to his original plan, he marched his army from Dorylaeum to what was left of the city of Caesarea so badly sacked by Afsin in 1067. He had amassed a large army by the time he arrived, boosted by the incoming regiments of Cappadocian and other Anatolian soldiers. Nevertheless, a worrying aspect of the Crispin incident was the poor performance of the regular Byzantine soldiers in the Western army against Crispin's Normans, since it showed that there was still a long way to go before the Byzantine soldiers could match the Normans. After this distraction, Romanus was ready to embark on his march to Armenia. He led the army from Caesarea east to the town of Larissa, where a large Turkish raiding party was nearby. Romanus sent out scouts and there was some skirmishing with the Turks, which persuaded him to advance with the whole army to meet them in battle. The Byzantines marched into a plain to find themselves surrounded by the Turks occupying the hills. As he had done in Syria, Romanus led his army with skill and inspired his troops to fight well. The Turks charged down from the hills, hoping to catch the Byzantines before they could form into battle lines, but Romanus was ready for them. He kept discipline in the Byzantine ranks. There was a good performance by the new eastern army, in particular a regiment from Lyconia, the province next to Cappadocia. This regiment, together with another from the western army, charged the Turks head-on and put them to flight. The whole Byzantine army then advanced into the hills and the Turks fell back in headlong retreat. Romanus sent the light Pecheneg cavalry ahead to try and cut off the Turks' retreat as the slower Byzantine infantry marched forward. Nevertheless, most of the Turks got away. Romanus pursued them down the valley where they had come from, keeping his troops in tight formation and waiting for the ambush that he knew would be inevitable. But the Turks had a different plan. Instead of trying to ambush the advancing Byzantine infantry, Turkish horsemen wheeled across the hills to attack the Byzantine camp. What they didn't know was that Romanus had expected this and left it well defended, with a group of Norman soldiers, uh, who were a different band from Crispin's, and several Byzantine units. There was a fierce fight. The Turks, hoping for easy pickings, found themselves confronted by Norman and Byzantine swords. The Normans fought better than the Byzantines, according to the sources, and were mainly responsible for driving the Turks off. When Romanus heard of the attack on the camp, he called off the main army's advance. It was late afternoon by then, and the soldiers were tired after a day's fighting. Although most of the Turks had got away, it was still a victory. The next day, Romanus took revenge on the Turkish prisoners. He executed every single one, numbering about a hundred. One of them, who claimed to be their leader, promised a large ransom as well as the release of Byzantine prisoners if he was spared. But Romanus wasn't in the mood for negotiation. With the memory of the humiliating sack of Armorium no doubt fresh in his mind, he had the protesting Turk beheaded in front of him. 
The rest of the campaign is poorly supported by contemporary sources. Indeed, the only detailed description of it is that recorded by the Byzantine senator Michael Italiates. According to him, Romanus then decided to call off the whole campaign, thinking that the Turks were in retreat back to Armenia and that it would be best to rest the army for a more decisive campaign the following year. But he was persuaded by Italiates, who records this himself, indulging in uncharacteristic self-promotion, to continue the campaign with a march to Armenia as originally intended. Romanus therefore resumed the campaign, marching the army past Melitine and crossing the Euphrates. The army advanced quite far east, within a hundred miles of Mansikert and Kliat, before Romanus again decided to stop. Ataliates claims this was a mistake. The reason is not entirely clear, but it seems that Romanus was ill, for Ataliates said that he needed to go north in search of, quote, snow and cold water for which he felt an uncontrollable need since his body had greatly overheated, end of quote. Leaving the bulk of the army under the command of a loyal general called Philaretus Bracamius, Romanus rode northwest with a smaller group of troops into the cooler climate of the Taurus Mountains. There he rested and he seems to have recovered his health. But he'd made an uncharacteristic tactical mistake, as soon became clear. For Romanus had again underestimated the competence of the troops he'd left guarding the frontier, when a new and particularly resourceful Turkish warband appeared, they defeated Philaretus's forces who fled to join the emperor. Although this time the Turks weren't commanded by Afsin, the infamous Turkish warlord who had sacked Armorium, their leader must have been a very daring chieftain, for he led his raiding party several hundred miles behind the front line into the heartland of the empire. Romanus had been outwitted. His slower-moving troops simply couldn't match the speed of the Turks. It was like being trapped in a revolving door. He immediately marched after them, but by then it was too late. Then he received devastating news. The city of Iconium had been sacked. It was a large, rich city in the Anatolicon theme in the west of Anatolia, so far behind the front line that its inhabitants were not expecting an attack and the city's defences were easily overcome. Exactly as the sack of Armorium had been the year before, it was another devastating blow to his prestige. In desperation, Romanus hoped to minimise the disgrace by catching the retreating Turks. He nearly managed it. He sent messengers to the governor of Antioch, Chatoturios, who was a loyal ally of his, instructing him to block the Turks from getting back into Syria. It looked as if Chatoturios would succeed. Blocked by Romanus's army in the north, 
The Turks' only escape route was to the south through the difficult Taurus Mountains and down to the Mediterranean coastline, where Chaturturius was waiting for them. Romanus sent orders to Armenian troops garrisoning the mountaintops to intercept the Turks. They certainly did a good job peppering the Turks with spears and arrows and causing them to abandon most of their booty. But the Armenians couldn't stop them and most of the Turks managed to get through the mountains and down to the coast. In the Cilician Plain, Chaturturius tried to intercept the Turks at a place called Mopsuestia near to the coast, but somehow they managed to give him the slip. Making use of their excellent horsemanship, they deftly skirted around the Byzantine stronghold at Antioch to find safety in Syria. The sack of Iconium was another devastating blow for Romanus. For a second time, he had failed to protect the interior of the empire from Turkish raids. It was now autumn and he had no choice but to return to Constantinople. There was to be no triumphal march on his return this time. Instead, he returned to the great city to find that his deadly enemies, the Dukai, were stirring up discontent like the Furies in a Greek tragedy. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, it would be great to leave a rating. Thank you so much. In the next episode, we'll hear how Romanus continues in his struggle to save Byzantium.